Matthew's gospel. Many years ago, when I first became an elder, not in this church, it was in another church, an older man spoke to me and he said to me, uh, uh, gave me a piece of advice that I have never forgotten. What he said to me was, David, people will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. Over the years, the truth of that little piece of wisdom has come back to me again and again. We are returning this morning to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who are joining us this morning in that study for the first time, welcome. We are going through Matthew's gospel. We are here in chapter 5. We have been looking at verses 1 through 12 and have been doing so for a number of weeks. In fact, what we are doing is breaking these 12 verses down into an eight-part sermon series. Eight-part series. Because what we noted here in these verses commonly known as the Beatitudes, is that Jesus is providing for us a a description of a disciple, and it's an eight-part description, an eight-part description. And he's talking about what it means to be a disciple and the reward that is promised to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We have noted and will again note this week that each of these descriptions builds upon the preceding one and they are all rooted in the Old Testament. The Beatitudes are not requirements that merit God's approval. It's not something you do in order that God would look favorably upon you. That is not the purpose why they are given. Instead, what this is, is a, is a picture of the character traits of someone who is a follower of God, someone who is a disciple. What that means is that all of these character traits, all eight parts of them, exist in the true followers of Jesus Christ, at least in principle, in seed form. And they must be cultivated in the ongoing process of discipleship. So if you are a follower of Christ this morning, we are going to speak about being compassionate. This will be true of you. You are compassionate as a follower of Jesus Christ because there has been a transformation to take place in you. but you may well not be as compassionate as God would have you be. So it exists in principle. It needs to be cultivated in practice. Now, as I've said, they are, they are dependent upon one another and they are linked to one another. They sort of lead on into the description. Beginning in verse 3 where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We noted some time back that that characteristic is really one of humility. That is, that the disciple of Jesus Christ is is humble, verse 3. 
We noted as well in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, that the disciple of Jesus Christ is repentant. So they are humble. Verse 3, verse 4, repentant. Verse 5, they are described as gentle or meek. So humble, repentant, meek or gentle. Last time we noticed in verse 6 that a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is intensely desiring both inward and outward righteousness. All right, verse 6, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what characterizes them. And as we will see this morning in verse 7, the disciples of Christ are compassionate. They are compassionate. Now, just like every other of the characteristics we've looked at in the past, we're going to do it in a three-pronged approach. We're taking the same structure and outline every week, a three-pronged approach. And we're doing it so that we might truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. Come follow me. This three-pronged approach is characterized in three words, right? Designate. Evaluate. Someone said it. Cultivate. There we go. I know it's been a couple of weeks, holidays, too much sugar. I get it. Okay. Designate, evaluate, cultivate. That's been our approach. Very simple, hopefully memorable as we go through the process. So what we're going to do this morning, very simply again, is we're going to designate what does it mean to be merciful? Because Jesus says, verse seven, blessed are the merciful. Why are they blessed? Because or for they shall receive mercy. There's a future promise of mercy. All right, so let's look at this. Let's designate. What does it mean to be merciful? If it's a blessed condition, let's figure out what it is. What does it mean to be merciful? Now, this is a little bit of a slippery term, a little elusive, but I think we can get it. So let's start out. Mercy is an outward manifestation. So let's just start with that. Mercy is an outward manifestation of pity toward those in misery. It is an outward manifestation of pity toward those who are in misery. So there's an object, those in misery. There is a feeling, it is pity towards them, but it doesn't end there. There is this outward manifestation of the inward sense of pity. It is an active compassion. It is an active compassion that refuses to remain unexpressed in word and deed. So again, the key idea is active. It's compassionate, but it's an active compassion. It cannot be suppressed or held back. Mercy identifies with the suffering of another individual and then seeks to alleviate it. It identifies with it and then seeks to alleviate the suffering of another. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says. The adjective merciful Excuse me, it appears in only one other place in the New Testament, and it's a very interesting place. It's in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. You don't need to turn there. Just write it down or remember it. 
Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 17. It's the only other place the adjective is used. And it's spoken there about Jesus being our merciful high priest by virtue of his incarnation. It's very interesting. Remember, we said that, that mercy is an outward manifestation of pity. It is an active compassion. Jesus manifested his compassion or his pity towards the fallen race of Adam by stepping into space and time and taking to himself human flesh. It was his act of mercy, his act of mercy. Now, in the New Testament, and actually in the Bible as a whole, mercy is, is closely linked with forgiveness. Those two terms, those two ideas are rather closely linked. They are not identical, but they are closely linked. But mercy is a little bit broader than, than simply forgiveness of a specific offense. It's a generous attitude. To be compassionate and merciful is a, is a generous attitude, and it's a, it's a willingness to see things from the other person's point of view. We might say to, to get into their shoes, right? To see it from their point of view. Now, mercy rejects, catch this, mercy rejects the assumption that it is honorable to demand revenge. Mercy rejects that assumption. That the right thing to do, the honorable thing to do, is to seek revenge when you have been wrong. Mercy rejects that. Mercy flows from grace. Here's an interesting observation here. So I will turn you here. First uh, Timothy. So go ahead and turn to the right here. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Mercy flows from grace. This is Paul's salutation, Paul's greeting to Timothy. As Paul says, to, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And look at this, this little string here. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. And you can see it in Second Timothy as well. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2 again. To Timothy, Paul says, verse 2, chapter 1, 2 Timothy. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The order is significant. The order is significant. Mercy flows from grace. Grace comes first. Mercy flows out of grace. Where there is no grace, there is no mercy. One empowers the other. I have a quote for you here from, uh, from John MacArthur. I thought he said things well, so I'll just go ahead and put it up there for you and read it to you. He writes in his commentary on Matthew, I think it's helpful. He says, mercy and its related terms all have to do with pain, misery, and distress as a consequence of sin. Ours or someone else's. Grace deals with sin itself. Mercy deals with the symptoms. Grace with the cause. That was pretty good. 
Mercy deals with the symptoms, grace with the cause. Mercy offers relief from punishment. Grace offers pardon from the crime. Mercy eliminates the pain. Grace cures the disease. So you can see how they're related. You see how forgiveness and mercy run together very closely. But it is grace that that actually deals with the transgression itself. And it is is mercy that is an expression of, It comes as because of grace that allows us to deal with the pain of the transgression. Okay, so grace stands behind and motivates or animates mercy. Now, mercy itself is repeatedly modeled in the life of Jesus. We would expect that, wouldn't we? If he says, as a follower of mine, as the disciple of mine, back to chapter 5, Matthew, right, just... Keep reminding ourselves of the context. Verse 1, chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are, verse 7, the merciful or the compassionate, for they shall receive mercy. And so we would expect Jesus himself to be characterized by mercy. And indeed, that's exactly what we find for example in chapter 9 of matthew's gospel we'll just click through a few of these quickly matthew 9 and verse 27 matthew 9 verse 27 as jesus went on from there two blind men followed him crying out have mercy on us son of david When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. Their eyes were opened. Okay, their eyes were opened. Have mercy on us, son of David. By the way, that's really interesting how the two blind men approach him. They approach him as Messiah. They call out to him as son of David, title for Messiah. Have mercy on us, Messiah. Heal our blindness. Take a look over in chapter 15. I'm sorry, let's, um, I think 36, did I have one there too? Oh yeah, there we go. Matthew 9, 36, just look at that too. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. He had mercy on them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That is, that sin and and the leadership, the fraudulent leadership of Israel had scattered the sheep. Jesus has compassion on them. He has mercy on them. Chapter 15 and verse 22. Pick it up in verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So this is up north of Israel on the coast. It's Gentile territory. 
Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Again, interesting. She approaches him as Messiah of Israel. Have mercy on me, Messiah. Mercy on me. Chapter 17, verse 15. The man here, he comes before Jesus and falls on his knees, saying, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Have mercy on my son. Do something to alleviate his suffering. Interestingly, chapter 18 and verse 33. In the midst of this lesson on forgiveness, you remember this? This is where the the master of the slave forgave him a comparatively small debt, and then that slave went out, or or excuse me, was forgiven a a massive debt that was going to be impossible to pay, and then that slave went out in a comparatively small debt, from a fellow slave, he was unwilling to forgive. The master calls him back in, verse 33. He says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Mercy begats mercy or should. Chapter 20, verse 30. Pick it up 29. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It's amazing how many times the appeal is couched in the terms son of David or Messiah. Have mercy on us. It was an expectation that Messiah would heal his people. He would take pity on his people. He would have compassion on his people. He would heal their diseases. I've got one more for you. It's kind of interesting. It's over in John's gospel. John chapter 8. John 8. This is the account where there is a woman who has supposedly been caught in the very act of adultery, right? And she's brought before Jesus and they want to to accuse him. They want to trap him. And so they say, we caught her in the very act of adultery and the law says we should stone her. What do you say? Jesus knows that this whole thing is a sham and a fraud. She's been caught in the very act of adultery. Why is there only she there? Right? You don't commit adultery by yourself. So this, they are, they are using this poor woman to get at him. Now he stoops down and writes in the dust. And, you know, for every commentary you read, there are four explanations of what it is he was writing. The answer is we have no idea. 
We have no idea. But there is something interesting here. When it's done and the, and the crowd of accusers has scattered, right? It begins with the old men and then eventually they're all disappears. It's just Jesus and the woman left. Straightening up verse 10, chapter 8. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Sin no more. Now, I'm not going to exegete this passage in John because I already did it a bunch of years ago. And if you'd like it, you can get it off the website. Okay? I preached through John's entire gospel. But I just want to lift that out to give you an illustration of the kind of compassion and mercy the Messiah has. This poor woman broken in sin. Notice his address to her. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. I will not have you stoned. I will not have you stoned. Now it's interesting. It's interesting to me at least that the opposite of mercy also appears in the gospel accounts. For that, I want to turn you back to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 and beginning in verse 51. It's all helping us to get our arms around the concept of mercy. Sometimes by looking at the opposite of what a characteristic is, we can get an idea. So here we are in... In Luke's gospel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So this is right near the end of his public ministry. This is his last spin through the land, as it were. And he's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. Verse 52, he sent messengers out ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they, that is the Samaritans, did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Because he was only passing through, they weren't really very interested in him. Verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They've disrespected you. Shall we incinerate them for you? Verse 55. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They went on to another village. Lord, they disrespected you. They've offended you. You are Messiah. They should, they should come. They should fall at your feet. And they won't do it. Shall we just burn them up? Where is your mercy? Where is your compassion? You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. You have a spirit of harshness. Not compassion or mercy. Son of man did not come to incinerate sinners. 
but to save them. Mercy was lacking in the Pharisees. Back to uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 9. Matthew 9, verse 13. Context here is that Jesus is dining with Matthew and the sinners, right? The tax gatherers and so forth. And he said to his disciples, verse 11, why is it that your teacher is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Jesus heard this. He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire compassion, or you could substitute, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Chapter 12. Context here is the disciples are hungry and they're passing through a grain field. And as the law allows, they were rubbing together in their hands just a little bit of grain in order to get something to eat. But they didn't ceremonially wash their hands. And so the Pharisees are, are just coming down on this transgression of their rules and regulations of spirituality. And Jesus responds again, verse 17. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Or chapter 23 and verse 23. Matthew 23 and 33, or 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tie the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees are characterized by religious devotion that is compassionless. They get all the externals correct. There's no heart of compassion. There's no mercy in their soul. Jesus conducts his public ministry constantly being bombarded with requests to have compassion, to have mercy on us, son of David, and he does. The Pharisees couldn't care less. Could not care less about the plight of broken humanity. Back to Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are the merciful, because they shall receive mercy. They will receive mercy from God. Some mistakenly 
understand this to, to be communicating that if you are merciful, other people will be merciful with you. That's not necessarily true. And the proof of that, of course, is Jesus himself, right? No one was more merciful than him and no one was treated with less mercy than him. So this is not about if I live this way, people will be merciful back to me. They may and they may not. What he is saying is that if you live this way and you must live this way as a disciple of Jesus Christ, then God will show you mercy. Even if your fellow human beings do not. God will show you mercy. Why? Because mercy is a characteristic of God. He is a merciful God. And he is merciful to his people. For example, Psalm 18, verse 25. With the merciful, David says, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. Psalm 86, verse 15, David says again, You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. David says again, Psalm 103, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Just as a father has compassion, On his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Or David says again, Psalm 145 and verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Notice how many times David speaks of the mercy of God. David knew God well, and one of the things he knew because of that was that God is a merciful God, that he cares about us. He cares about us. Luke 6.36, Jesus says that we are to be merciful just as your father is merciful. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ. God is rich in mercy. For the children of God, we will receive mercy. It's coming. It's coming. When will it arrive in its its full extent? When Messiah brings in his kingdom, when Messiah brings in his kingdom, then the full mercy of God will be poured out on us. His active compassion in which he he overwhelms all of the of the pain of sin and misery. When Messiah brings in his kingdom. Blessed are the merciful. For in the end, they shall receive mercy. Okay. Now we have an idea what it is. It's time for evaluation. Where do we stand? We are followers of Jesus Christ. Where, where do we stand? So let's, let's a little self-diagnosis. Okay. This is painful. Every time you go to the doctor, it's painful. 
But if it wasn't painful, then there would be no cure. So this is painful. I get it. But it's time to take a look. Where do we stand? Now, it's interesting to note here, verse 7 again, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. This is an indication, let me just say it this way. This is an indication that that this person, this disciple, their bent is towards mercy. It's an adjective. They are described as merciful. Their bent is towards mercy, not that they engage in occasional acts of mercy. I think that's an important difference we need to take note of. To be merciful is to be described as someone who is merciful. It's not speaking of an occasional act of mercy that someone might do. So for for a disciple of Jesus Christ, mercy is not something that's called forth by a particular situation, but but is characteristic of who we are. Characteristic of who we are. That means we're not merciful in one situation and unmerciful in another. We are merciful because we're new creations in Christ. All right, so here we go. Question number one. Are you the sort of person people will come to when they are in great need? It's an interesting question. Are you the sort of person that people come to? Do they seek you out when they are in great need? Let's apply it down at the family level. Moms, dads, do your children know that your first response will be mercy if they come and confess a wrongdoing? Do they know they will receive mercy? Or are they afraid to come to you? Afraid of the response. Interesting question, isn't it? How do others see me? Says something about the character of mercy in my life. Second question. When you see someone struggling or in distress, are you able to walk or drive on by? Just keep on going. I mean, maybe you feel bad for them, right? There's a certain sense of pity. Maybe you think it, maybe you say it, that poor person, that poor person, but you keep on going. See, mercy, as we said, is not just merely a feeling. It's not just a feeling of pity. It is a pity that motivates us to do something about it, to try to alleviate the suffering. MacArthur says again, in every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. God did. The good Samaritan did. And so do we. To be merciful is to bear the load for someone else. It's a good statement. All right, the good Samaritan demonstrated mercy because he bound the man's wounds, took him to a place where he could stay and be taken care of, and paid to have the man cared for. There was mercy in action. All right, third diagnostic question. Are you understanding and patient with other people's sins and shortcomings? Are you understanding and are you patient? Remember Psalm 103. God knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He has a patience with us. He has a compassion with us. 
because he knows we are weak. So does that characterize you? Are you patient with people's shortcomings and sins? When they are directed towards you and when you're sinned against, do you inwardly desire to punish them, make them feel the pain, right, because they've hurt you? Or can you let it go? Can you let it go, right? First Peter 4, 8, love covering a multitude of sins. Are you merciful? Fourth diagnostic question. Do you tend to see the lost as sheep without a shepherd or wolves to be avoided? Are they sheep without a shepherd? That is that you have compassion upon those who do not know Jesus Christ. Or do you see them as a wolf, a threat, a danger that you must stay away from? Fifth, can you look back over your Christian life and and see that you have, by God's grace, grown in this Christian virtue? What I'm saying is, are you more merciful, more compassionate today than you were five years ago? Do you desire to grow more merciful, more compassionate? Are you satisfied with being hard? Diagnostic questions, right? They get really close. Okay. Designate, evaluate, cultivate. Okay, how do we cultivate it? How do we cultivate this characteristic? I mean, it exists in us in seed form. All right. It's there, but, but it, boy, we want it to grow big. We want it to, we want it to really grow big in our lives. So how do we go about that? Hopefully here's some practical helps. Number one, practical help. How do, how do I become more merciful? How do I become more compassionate? This is a word particularly to the younger men of this congregation, but it is really to all of us. Here it is. Number one, restrict the amount of violence that you are exposed to. Okay, we're really good about talking about we don't want to be exposed to sexual immorality in the entertainment media, but we don't seem to talk much about violence. That's that's okay, right? No sex, no swearing, but lots of blown up bodies is okay. That's sort of the unwritten rule. Okay, here's the problem. Violence desensitizes us to human misery. It desensitizes our souls. Mark this down. A society that glorifies brutality despises mercy. Let me say it again so you can write it down. A society that glorifies brutality despises mercy. And if you want an illustration, you can look at Rome. You can look at Rome. They took brutality as entertainment to the pinnacle, didn't they? The pinnacle, and it was called the Colosseum. So restrict the amount of violence you are exposed to. Do not allow yourself to become desensitized to human suffering because it has become now entertainment for you. Two, secondly, regularly and deeply ponder the truth of the gospel. 
There is nothing better as an antidote to sin than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the only antidote. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his what? Mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God has been merciful to you by extending his grace to you to save you. And thus, when we think on the gospel, when we ponder the gospel deeply, we recognize his mercy to us and that motivates our mercy to others. Merciful people are people who are overwhelmed with the grace of God. Absolutely overwhelmed with it. They understand they are unworthy sinners deserving nothing but eternal condemnation in hell. But because God has showered mercy on them, they have been transformed. And they now pour out mercy on others. Matthew chapter 18, verse 33, right? To the servant. Since I showed such great mercy on you, you should have showed mercy on others. It should have been drawn out of you by the mercy you have received. Third, pray. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help you to grow in this Christian virtue. Mercy is not natural. It's not a characteristic of the natural man. And so we need the Spirit's enablement to see it grow in our lives. You will not become merciful without the Spirit of God working in you to transform you. So we need to pray, Lord, help me to become more compassionate, more merciful, not just to have pity for someone, but to actually act upon the feeling of pity that I have. Fourth, place yourself in a position where you are not sheltered from unbelievers. Place yourself in a position where you are not sheltered from unbelievers. Listen, as long as we look at unbelieving people as defiled and contagious, then we will seek to avoid them and we will not feel compassion for them. It is only when we see people as they really are and hurting. Why do they do what they do? They do it because they are separated from God. And that's when we begin to have mercy on them. Hey, it was easy for the Levi to walk by on the other side of the road. It was easy for the priest to walk by on the other side of the road. It was the Samaritan who crossed to help out that poor beaten man. Finally, begin to act upon the impulse to help somebody. When you sense the impulse, when you feel the impulse to help somebody in need, then act upon it. Start small, small steps. Real, real, real small steps. Are you ready? The first real, real, real small step. You may think this is kind of silly, but it, but it actually begins to... to sort of transform the way we look at people. Open the door for somebody in need. Just like, be the doorman. Just kind of open the door and hold it for them. Or they can open their own door. Yeah, they probably could. But see, it's a hard attitude. It makes you willing to do that. 
or give up your seat for somebody who is standing. See, our culture used to be more, more merciful. It was just sort of a cultural value. People used to give up their seats. Did you know that? Did you know guys would give up their seats for, for uh, women? Did you know that? You probably heard about that once a long time ago. <laughs> and did you know that women would give up their seats for older people? We just, we just did that because it was a, there was a certain cultural value that, had, that we had inherited from our forefathers, but it's now been virtually eroded. You walk to the, you walk to the, I don't know why this is my pet peeve, but you walk to the, I got many pet peeves. You walk, you walk to the store and someone opens the door and goes in and they like slam it in front of you. Did you ever notice that? They don't think about anybody else. They don't even stop to look over their shoulder to see if there might be somebody behind them that they could benefit by just holding the door open. A little compassion. All right, that's the easy stuff, but it begins small. Begins small. James tells us, James 121, visit the orphans and widows in their distress. Visit the orphans and widows. That is, engage with someone who needs help. Number three, get to know your neighbors. Just begin by getting to know your neighbors. And then when you begin to know them, you will begin to care about them. And then you can begin to get involved to help them. But it's really hard, right? Fences. You know, we've got the big block walls with the machine gun turrets and the Constantina wire all the way around. Then we press our remote, open just the garage door, in we go, down it closes. Right? They didn't see you, don't worry. Because they're doing the same thing. It's hard. It's easy to get locked into that, but we, just to get to know our neighbors. Take some interest in their life. Begin to, begin to figure out how to help. Engage. Here's another one. Open your home to somebody in need. There's a way to show, a practical way to begin to show compassion and mercy. Someone who is in need of housing, open your home to them. Instead of saying to them, be warned, be filled, and be gone. Right? Boy, I sure hope you find a place to live. Good luck. Open your home to them. Act upon your thoughts of pity by praying. Just pray. Start, start there. Pray. Someone, you see something, pray. Begin with that. And, and then from prayer, begin to move out and seek to do something. See, we will grow as a merciful people as we begin to take small baby steps. We just continue living things the way they are now and then expect that, you know, at the right moment when something really big comes, that's when I'll be merciful. That's not characteristic of a merciful person. A merciful person is merciful all the time. Now, we're not perfect. We haven't arrived. We're, we're struggling. And some are, seem to be more inclined this way than others, right? Some more merciful, it appears, than others. And, and that's up to God. But this is a Christian virtue. This is, a, this is what it means to be a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. We must be like this. So we must, we must spur this on and cultivate this and pray for this and, and act upon this and trust God to grow this in us as his children. It's a work of the grace of God. 
It's not a work to merit God's grace. It's a, it's a work that flows out of His grace. Historically, hospitals, orphanages, schools, they were started by Christians as an act of mercy for their fellow human beings who were in need. These are Christian, uniquely Christian endeavors because of the compassion of their hearts. May God enable us to grow as we, as we really ponder the gospel in it, and as we look into the pure word of God and it transforms us, that we'll become more and more merciful. We could turn this world upside down. May God grant us grace. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that it bruises and it heals. Thank you, our Father, that here in these Beatitudes, we, we come face to face with, with some of the really difficult issues of what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your Spirit's empowerment, His indwelling presence within us that causes our heart to long to live in a way that would be pleasing to you. Our Father, we, we just desire in this year, 2012, to, to really grow in the likeness of Christ. And our Father, we confess we live in a world in which there is very little mercy and very little compassion. We live in this dog-eat-dog world in which our hearts, which were naturally wicked and self-inclined, are, are constantly fed the lie. Oh, Lord, may you soften our hearts. May you enable us to, to begin to fulfill some of the desires that, that lie there and, and kindle within us, Lord, an even greater passion for men and women and boys and girls made in the image of God and marred and ruined by sin. Oh, Lord, let us realize that if it were not for the grace of Christ in us, we too would remain forever broken. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, my friends. May 2012 be a really great year.